There is an estimated 200 million tons of trash circulating in all water environments. For those of you like me that need a visual, that's like 100 football fields, six feet deep of trash. Now, with a globe that's 70% of the surface covered in water, wading through all that water to remove it is extremely difficult. Maybe many of you have uh, happened upon a beach or gone by a beach and seen either people cleaning it up, or taking off trash, or maybe you've seen it just a ton of trash just sitting there and laying there. And although those efforts are great and help keep that clean, they all know right, the, the ocean's just going to refill that beach with trash as soon as they clean it up. The best method of cleaning out trash from the ocean is to go to the source. Right? What's more startling is that only 1% of rivers contribute to 80% of trash in the ocean. The most cost and time effective effort for cleaning out trash of the ocean is to go to the 1% source. Our efforts to reduce our worry in our life seem to fall in the same pattern of cleaning off a refilling beach. We try little habit or relational changes only to wake the next morning with a beach full of wasteful worry. Unless we address the source, our wasteful worry will simply be replaced. We've all come across worry, whether others' worry impacting our life or our own selves being captivated by it, careless of it, or cautious. We wonder how we deal with it. Many of us deal with it in different ways, some unhealthier than others. Students are always stressed. Parents are always anxious. Maybe even your holiday week was a little more fretful than thankful. Even coming amidst all this COVID issues, we maybe feel the revealed stress in our life through those opportunities, through those times, or maybe it pressed in and we didn't even realize it was there. Maybe you felt like you've made an enormous effort, even through this season, to clean off your beach, only to wake the next morning with it full of wasteful worry. Our text this morning is Matthew 6, 25 through 34, so you can go ahead and head over that direction as I orient us to where our text is placed in the Bible. This passage is amidst uh, the Sermon on the Mount which spans from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. These three chapters of Matthew's gospel focus on teachings from Christ about entering the kingdom of heaven, also known as the kingdom of God. And in short, the kingdom of God exists where the rule and reign of Christ is present. Right, so when he reigns in the hearts and the minds and in us here at Old North, that's an outpost for the kingdom of God. When he reigns in the hearts and minds of you in your home, it's an outpost for the kingdom of God. And when he reigns in the hearts and minds of believers all over the globe, those are outposts for the kingdom of God. And in this Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus teaches on the reality of his kingdom and what it means to live in it and seek it. In this section that we're in this morning, it deals with worry. What is my 1% area, the 1% of my rivers that are feeding worry into every area of my life? 
Go ahead and read the passage with me, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Anytime we see a therefore in our passage we're studying in the middle school room with our students, we always encourage them with the familiar but almost annoying phrase, well, what's the therefore? Therefore. Nice. Good work. The first, we have not just one, but we have three in this passage. And they all followed by the command, do not be anxious. Easier said than done, right? The first one leads to our passage right before this, right? 6, 19 through 24. And if you just look there real quickly, you'll see three different metaphors. One for treasure, one for light, and one for slavery. All of these are directing us on how to view our earthly possessions, right? Many of you know those illustrations, those stories there, right? Our treasure is not to be stored here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven, right? And with money, we're not, just, we're not able to serve two masters. We're either devoted one and despise the other, challenging us with what we're to do with our earthly possessions. Our earthly possessions can displace God, is what they argue, and reveal the true source of our hearts, he turns from addressing this perspective on earthly possessions to then address our perspective in this passage on our earthly needs. And in light of that perspective, when we have with our treasures, our possessions, we get our command here, do not be anxious. And many of us see that in a hundred different ways, whether how we treat our worry, what we do with our anxiousness. We're either careless about it, we're captivated by it, or maybe we're a little more cautious. My daughter loves Disney. Maybe I forced that upon her. My wife and I really love Disney. I don't know. But she's been uh, singing a lot of the songs as she starts to get them memorized. And the one lately has been Hakuna Matata, right? It means no worries for the rest of your days. Now you're going to have that stuck in your, your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. But she loves that song, right? It's hilarious, it's cute, funny. But in the story, right, in The Lion King, the movie that it's from, he actually runs from his life of mistake, his life of responsibility, his life of worry, you could say, and buries himself in this Hakuna Matata life, right? Careless, no worries, just get rid of them, right? But this is not the mindset we're called to have when it comes to what Jesus is calling us to when he says, do not be anxious. This isn't an excuse for laziness or escape. We aren't to avoid our worry, 
on one hand, but we also aren't to be obsessed with it on the other side. I think the difference between a wise steward and a worrying horde is our perspective, our perspective and where it is wrapped up and focused. So in our passage, we see three directions that our perspective needs to shift. Our first perspective is on God's care, not our worry. God's care, not our worry. And he gives us two things to not worry about, right? Our life and our body. He's given us both of those things, our life and our body. And naturally, he's going to give us the things that those both need. Our life needing food and water and our body needing protection, needing clothing. If he gave us those things in the first place, he's going to give us the things to help us survive and stay alive with those. Although we might initially think, well, I don't have to worry where my next meal is coming from. I got some good Thanksgiving leftovers waiting for me at home, right? Or maybe we don't necessarily worry about if we'll have clothes tomorrow. We more often worry about what we'll wear tomorrow, right? When we're the wealthiest countries in the world, or even our poorest are more wealthy than other parts of the world. But the difference between someone that's poor and wealthy that we could say, if we want to give those categories, is that the poor is unable to relieve the presence of needs, whereas one with wealth can Although most of us, if not all of us, aren't actually concerned with where our next meal and our clothing, just because we can relieve those needs doesn't mean we are still not worrying about them or that we stop worrying in general. We could have all the money in the world yet still struggle and worry about financial security. We could have all the relationships, the family, the friends, the popularity, yet still worry about being alone. We could have the greatest health. We could be our fittest we've ever been, yet still worry about being sick and dying. Our worry is not always tied to our ability to take care of the need. It's just another beach. The source is somewhere else. He gives two metaphors to explain the care that he has for us two of them. The first one, he says, look at the birds, right? Look at the birds. Maybe he's sitting on the hillside and points them out, right, as they're flying by. Nothing specific about the birds, a generic bird, right, with wings, beak, nothing too crazy, right? But the creator, sustainer of the universe who designed this bird, designed them to have instincts for the worms in the ground to feed their young, to have this daily type of living. He cares for them and he feeds them. But was any bird created in God's image? Do they have the ability to be co-heirs with Christ? Do they have a place prepared for them in heaven? No. Yet God still cares for them. Are we not more valuable than they? Verse 27 is the real kicker. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Just an hour. That's all we want to try to add sometimes, right? But on our deathbed, right, no one tries to think, well, okay, man, if I just worried about my job a little bit more, maybe it would have panned out fine. And we didn't wish we worried more. If if I hadn't worried about my kids, they would have turned out way worse, right? Or if I would have worried about my relationship with my spouse more, then it would have been fine. We would have been okay. We don't wish to worry more. Worrying about life is much more likely to shorten it than actually lengthen it. Our life is in the Father's hands to begin with, so why do we try to pry it from his grasp? We can worry, but it's not going to do us any good. 
Look at the birds, consider the lilies, right? Another thing that's going to be gone tomorrow, right? Maybe even there's a kid that plucks one. They're probably all across the hillside. You see them really pretty, but pick one and it's dead. Gone the next day. It can be burned in a fire for kindling or whatever is used. But even God cares for those. Yet they're not sitting around worrying about what they're going to look like tomorrow. I wore purple yesterday. Maybe I should do pink, but that doesn't bring out my eyes as much. My, my stem really just doesn't do well with my figure. I don't know if that, does this, does this make me look like the best I can be, right? But today we have so much uh, resources, so many resources and money poured into not just having clothes, but how others perceive us in those clothes, I recently heard that everyone has a color that just fits them best, right? And saying, okay, if you can get that color, or, hey, this is what helps you look the best that you are, right? And say, hey, it's all about, and some of us naturally gravitate towards that. Apparently, we already choose that color, and we just naturally, whether it's our skin or eye, whatever, I don't know. I didn't believe that, to be honest, um, until I looked at my wardrobe, and it was all blue. <laughs> Apparently, that's my color. But if God so clothes the lilies of the field, won't he care for our bodies that he gave us? He gives the comparison to Solomon. And if he, not even he, in all his glory, was dressed like this lily that's gone tomorrow, how much more is he going to care for us? Quick reminder here is that Solomon was pretty glorious, right? Most of us know that. 1 Kings 10, 1 through 7 tells of Queen Sheba and her visit to him says this, I'll read it for us, don't worry about flipping there. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She said to the king, The report was true that I heard on my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. If a lily has more breathtaking splendor, how much more breathtaking are you? We have unique fingerprints and eyes and an unfathomable brain and regenerating skin. God created the entire world, the entire universe, and yet in the creation story, we see that he has mankind who's created in his image as the pinnacle and prize creation. If he cares about the lilies and the birds, how much more is he going to care for us? After using this comparison of the birds and the lilies, almost ridiculous contrast. We know this truth. He calls them a term that seems endearing, but then it's also kind of convicting at the same time. He says, he calls them there, if you look back at it, oh, you of little faith. He actually uses this term several more times throughout Matthew. In 826, where the disciples are worried and the storm on the boat, he says, oh, you of little faith. 1431, Peter's, Peter's walking on the water towards him, but he starts to sink. 
16.8 as well, when they start fighting over what Jesus meant with his bread analogy, when he's telling them to watch out for the Pharisees. They missed it. He calls them, oh, you of little faith. And finally, they try to cast out a demon in 17.20, but they ask why they couldn't. He says, because you had little faith. And it's right after that last occurrence in 17.20, they says, all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. And many of us already know how big that is or how small it is. It's not big at all, right? It's tiny. It's really, really little. So one commentator said, this isn't really about an absence of faith, more a deficiency of faith. He's talking to his disciples in each of these occurrences. So he's not talking about people lacking and saving faith in Christ. That's not what he's talking about. It's about an absence, a deficiency, too little. But if that's all that we need, how, how much, much less than we won't be able to see it, right? How, how can we be too little, but like not that much? That doesn't seem like a big gap. If we have much less, is it even visible to the naked eye? And I'm joking, but I, I think that's the point. If we've placed our faith in Jesus for our salvation, that should naturally lead to a lived out faith in our Heavenly Father who cares for us so much more than birds and flowers. A wise sage once said, do or do not, there is no try. For all the non-Star Wars fans in the room, although Yoda may have been referring to the Force, I think this concept is similar when it comes to our faith. We are either trusting in God or we're not. There's no in-between trying ground. It's not about mustering up a little bit more faith. We're either trusting in him or we aren't. Our worry says we aren't. What's the similarity in each of these occasions with his disciples where he says, oh, you of little faith? Their perspective was on earth. Their perspective was off. They focused on what was worrying them or what was happening around them, not on God's care for them and what God was doing in and around them. So not only are we to shift our perspective to God's care, but secondly, towards God's kingdom, not our need. God's kingdom, not our need. Here's what the next section says. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we see the repeated command, do not be anxious. And then followed by the same questions about our worry, right? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And it's here in the passage, it shifts a little bit from these questions that it's been asking us and questioning ourselves as we go through the passage to these firm statements Two firm perspectives that all of us fall into. We either in one's perspective or the other. The first is like the Gentile. Gentile, pagan, heathen, all the same word and refers to those without God or without Christ. It makes sense for them to worry because they have no heavenly father. But if our perspective is stuck on what we need, we sound and act like those who have no heavenly father. It doesn't make sense for us to, lo- to live that way and line up with the godly kingdom values that we're supposed to have. Jesus is saying, my children are no better than this. Those who are mine don't act that way. 
You're not even trying to clean off the beach. You're trying to wade into the ocean and, and fish out trash. from. That's just, that's ridiculous. Don't even go that way. You have little faith. Live out the faith you've already placed in me. Why would you worry about your salvation in me, but worry about your starvation? It, the perspective is off. Instead, our perspective is this, that we should have. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The word for seek here suggests an unceasing quest, constant effort, and organizing of priorities. It's a change in perspective. And changing our perspective to be on God's care and God's kingdom is more than just refraining from temporal things, but also focusing on something far greater. Putting it another way, when you focus on the kingdom of God, the care of your heavenly Father drowns your worry. The wasteful worry finds its source in our improper perspective. The 1% cause, the tiny channel that spreads to every area of our life, feeding every corner, every beach, every space, simply addressing those beaches won't solve the problem. We have to address our perspective. And with proper perspective of God's care, God's kingdom, and what he wants us to see and focus on comes proper placement of our worry. Maybe if you're anything like me this past week, trying to wrestle and live this out myself and understand it, you've tried cleaning your own beach. Whether it's your own habits, your own relationship changes, your own efforts, even through COVID, maybe you think you've mastered something or you've had it figured out or we understand where we're at or how to live this way, but then another variant comes, another relationship happens, another issue changes something and our beach is full again. How do I deal with my 1% river? This idea of seeking the kingdom of God, as I said earlier, is the whole Sermon on the Mount focus, right? What it means to do that, how we are to live in it, and the, the importance of that. And so I would challenge you, if this is something that you're really trying to understand and wrestle with and change your life towards and understanding that trajectory, all of the Sermon on the Mount speaks to this. And now actually, D.A. Carson says it as well. I'm deeply convinced that the Church of Christ needs to study the Sermon on the Mount again and again. And so instead of, and I think actually Nick said I could go till next week, right? I can go to next week. Yeah, sweet. All right. So we're going to spend the rest of the week going through, just kidding. But what we will do, I'll give, let's go with a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves on what this even means to seek the kingdom of God, uh, to not just sit around and think about God all day, but what does that mean? What does that tangibly look like? Uh, two brief questions and a couple of takeaways that we see in the whole Sermon on the Mount. But first, we have to ask ourselves, am I identified more about my worry or my worship? Just like earthly possessions can displace God, as we saw in the text right before this, our earthly needs can cause distrust towards God. One commentator said, the root of anxiety is unbelief. We don't believe God when he says, I'm going to care for you. I'm with you. I'm there for you. I know what's best for you. John MacArthur adds, saying, worrying is the sin of distrusting the promise and the providence of God. Another adds, worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. 
A final illustration is that worry is a thin stream of fear that trickles through the mind. If encouraged, it'll cut a channel so wide that all other thoughts will be drowned in it. Worry is when we're mastered by our circumstances and not our Heavenly Father. And so often we find ourselves drifting there. It's so easy, it's so relevant. And so I think this leads us naturally to our next question. What does it mean for me to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? It's not just thinking about God all day or sitting and singing songs all the time or reading his Bible every single second. What does this look like? As I said, from the surrounding text through the Sermon on the Mount, some of the key takeaways that we can see is this. God's priorities become my priorities. What he values, I value. What he sees as successful, I see as successful. Which will look different from the world around us. If we don't look different, if someone can't tell us apart, if it seems like we have the same priorities than they do, seems like we have the same success values, then we need to check our priorities. Secondly, pursuit of God flavors all my endeavors. We're still to work hard, right? This doesn't mean hakuna matata, right? It's still encouraging us to be faithful and obedient and honor God in all that we do. Finally, regular prayer expresses my dependence upon him. We see that in the Lord's Prayer, which is right before this. That's what prayer is recognizing our dependence on God. It's not a checklist of being like, okay, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need, it's regular dependence. And when we do that regularly, it not only helps us realize our daily need, but it also shifts our perspective. Because when we focus on the kingdom of God, the care of our Heavenly Father drowns our worry. Our final perspective shift in the last verse culminates these first two. So we should focus on, finally, God's today, not our tomorrow. God's today, not our tomorrow. Here's what I mean by that, right? Because tomorrow will take care of itself. We're free to focus on God and what he has for us in his day today. This is the day he's made. This is his day that he's given us, that he's blessed us with. And we can focus on today and not be worrying about tomorrow. Matthew 6, 34, our final verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our last therefore, right? In light of the fact that God cares for us more than birds and lilies. In light of the fact that our mindset should be on him and seeking his righteousness in his kingdom. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. All the worry for tomorrow does nothing for the problems of today. What about that test or that game or sermon? I don't know what I'm gonna, drowned by God's care for me. Well, what about, uh, there's this, I have to make this decision with college. It's a a life-changing, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to, drowned by God's care for me. Well, I have this conflict at work. It's causing a lot of stress. I'm losing a lot of sleep. I don't really know. Drowned by God's care for me. But what about my parents and their, their health is declining? I'm not sure what tomorrow is going to bring. It could look drowned by God's care for me. How does Jesus teach his disciples to pray? 
And many of us know the Lord's Prayer mentioned just a page before, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He teaches them to ask their heavenly Father, again, that focus, orientation, for their daily bread. Not their weekly groceries, not their monthly paycheck, daily. We don't have to worry about those things we need. We don't have to worry about our life or our body. We don't have to worry about the things that keep us alive because they don't. God is the one that sustains us, protects us, provides for us. But what's difficult about our worry, especially about tomorrow and what's upcoming, is that it's often correct. We don't have the current mindset, awareness, ability, resources to take on tomorrow. God gives us what we need for today. When tomorrow gets here, we go back to him then and ask for him for what we need for tomorrow. We don't ask, hey, can you give me this week? Can you give me this month? What we're asking is, hey, God, can, can you make it so I don't have to depend on you? Therein lies the essence of faith, daily, regular, acted upon. And Jesus isn't saying that life is easy, that even things will pan out how we want to either, which is sometimes the most difficult. What he is saying is that our Heavenly Father cares for us, knows what we need, and is powerful enough to provide. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what is going to take place tomorrow, next week, let alone next month. Things will happen. But how will you respond? When we focus on the kingdom of God, the care of our Heavenly Father drowns our worry. I was wrestling this week with what this looks like, a tangible example, and the Lord showed me Psalm 63, one through eight. Let me read it for you as we near the end of our time in the word. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Like there's that seeking. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, that hunger, that desire. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be as satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Not our worries, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy, not cower in fear. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I want to end with a familiar story. I think might help us see this perspective shift drown out our worry. On January 8, 1956, a team of five men set out to witness to an unreached tribe. It was Sunday, and they were going to hold a worship service on the beach. Suddenly, they saw movement in the bushes and birds fly out of the trees. One of the men radioed with their wives back at the mission base and said that a large group looked to be on their way and to be praying for a welcoming party. He promised to radio at 4.30 p.m. to let them know how it went. The radio was silent for hours. No message came. The wives back at the base tried not to worry, 
But eventually, a search and rescue party was sent out on foot to see if anything had happened to the missionaries. Upon arriving on the beach, they found that the plane had been stripped of all its fabric and the wings were completely destroyed. Soon they found all five bodies of the men lying in the water with spears in their back. These were the bodies of Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Jim Elliott. The five missionaries had been killed in their attempts to reach the indigenous tribe in Ecuador. Yet, instead of being overcome by worry of her own life and circumstances, Elizabeth Elliot continued the effort to communicate the gospel to the tribe that killed her husband. Instead of worrying about, oh, what's my life going to look like? How am I going to be safe? How am I going to provide? What is I going to do? Does God really care for me if he did this, if he allowed this to happen? Many of you know the story. Two years later, she would eventually find herself sharing the gospel and seeing many of the Aka tribe come to know Christ. Although most of us want to experience that extreme level of loss and worry, we serve the same God that powerfully breaks down barriers to spread his kingdom into the heart of others. The same God that drowns our worry and emboldens our faith. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that as we are reminded in this season that you are with us. Father, grant us the faith to cast our worry onto you, to keep our gaze fixed upon your care, your kingdom, and the hope you have in your son, Jesus. For all of us in this room wrestling through worry, even today, God, whatever is in our hearts and our minds, you know it. Bring to mind the things that we might need to cast over to you. Help us to heed your command to not be anxious. God, as we sing in response to you, we want to praise you for your care and your kindness that you show us, that you promise to be with us, that you're a promise-keeping God. You're a God here amidst our problems, amidst our struggles, and with us in our worry. It's your wonderful name we pray. Amen.